So, Zach, I wanted to talk today about Planck's contribution to quantum mechanics and specifically the black body radiation problem that uh, we all learned Planck solved by introducing quantum mechanics. <laughs> Not as a whole, but uh, one of the, the origin stories of quantum mechanics is Planck's contribution. So I had a question about it, which was, what did he do? What was the contribution that fixed it? What was the problem? And how did he fix it with introducing um, quantized things? So what do you know about like the story? Because I, I bet you and I thought we knew the same story. And then uh, yeah, I guess spoiler alert, it's not what happened. And I read a book that was like 300 pages explaining how it wasn't what happened. So, um, just curious, like to start off, what was like, what's the, what's the legend that physics students hear? Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I have, um, I have a couple of thoughts cause you kind of just said before, like, Hey, we're going to talk about the UV catastrophe, mm -hmm. um, and plunk. And so, I I did some Googling before this um, and read a few things. But uh, prior to that Googling, I think like the general story I was told in my undergrad was uh, you had this law, um, like the Rayleigh genes or genes Rayleigh law that was uh, uh, kind of a classical application um, of, of, like electromagnetism and uh, statmech onto black body radiation. And that led to assign kind of like infinite energies at these lower wavelengths. And that was a problem because infinite energies doesn't make sense. Um, and then uh, kind of the, where the story that I heard goes from there to, well, then along came Planck and he uh, said, Hey, I'm just going to try quantizing energy bada bing bada boom there it is uh this nice curve that fits the data perfectly right right yeah and i i um i think the lay of the land before Planck started getting into his stuff um there were basically two laws that explained um the the intensity of radiation at different frequencies or wavelengths from an object that's at some temperature so I, maybe we should back up and just explain what black body radiation is first, because then that kind of sets the stage for what the problem that Planck solved. And then, as you said, the UV catastrophe, we'll, we'll talk about that. To start, um, when we talk about black body radiation, what we're talking about is an object at some temperature, uh, doesn't matter what it is, everything at some temperature that's not zero uh, emits radiation. And when it's pretty cold or even into room temperature like you and I or the stuff on your desk, that's emitting stuff in like infrared radiation. Uh, that's where like the peak is. And then you can get things hotter like a star and things at that temperature emit in our visible light that we see with our eyes. And then you can go even hotter than that and things get, um, they peak their temperature, uh, they peak their light intensity at a different color, basically. Uh, so you're probably familiar with this with like your oven, like when it's on, it kind of glows an orangey color. And then in addition to that orangey stuff that we can see, there's a whole bunch of infrared radiation. Um, in a normal everyday setting in like room temperature things, the spectrum goes from mostly infrared low energy uh, light into maybe just a little bit of visible light. But if you continue that spectrum and you, if you work out a mathematical equation to explain it, up in the high energies ultraviolet light, things blow up, meaning there's an infinite amount of energy in those high by including those ultraviolet um, wavelengths or frequencies. So before Planck, or, there... Or that's the way it was, right? Yes. Well, okay. yes, exactly. The, the old way of explaining, there's, there were two equations. So the Rayleigh-Jeans law is one of them. That one worked pretty good at low frequency. And that's the one that when it, you applied that to high frequency stuff, ultraviolet stuff, it blows up. Can it I, shoots to infinity really fast. Can I uh, uh, make one small caveat here? Sure. Yeah. So uh, one, well, I guess one thing of note is that everything does exactly what you're saying. Like, you know, we glow at infrared and everything, but this mm -hmm. whole spectrum stuff right. is all particular to black bodies. Yeah. Well, we is, didn't talk about black body yet, but yeah, you're right. Should which, clarify. Yeah. Which is a, 
an object that absorbs all frequencies and can em- emit all frequencies just loosely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so like they, they, they're a mythical beast. They're like unicorns. They don't exist. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's an idealization. Yeah. But we get pretty close. We, we, in, in, uh, like 1896 around the time Planck was working on all this, people were trying to make black bodies and they kind of did it by, um, making cavities with a small mm-hmm. hole in it. So like a shell of something, they would yeah, they, like a little box. Yeah. Where they put a tiny hole and then they would heat the, the cavity and look at the light coming out of the tiny hole. And that's right. pretty darn close to a black body. Cause you know, right. they, they don't want, they want something that doesn't, if, if you shine a red light on it, they don't want to see the red light bounce back. They don't want reflecting surfaces. So they would put like soot, like on the walls of the box, the cavity, um, and so that would like make it completely black. That means that every bit of light that's coming out of the tiny little hole was due to just the thermal radiation of the object rather than the fact that, you know, you had a kerosene lantern behind you as you were peeking through the hole. You don't want to see the kerosene lantern's reflection coming out of the hole also. So it was it just to ensure that all the light that's coming out of the hole is due to the thermal, um, radiation rather than anything else that could be around it. So it's a little confusing because we talk about the like the star, like a, a star, our sun is a perfect or pretty close to a perfect black body, but it's clearly not black, right? It's it's got a ton of light coming from it. Um, but when we talk about it, we're talking about like if we sh- had a flashlight that could reach the sun, it wouldn't reflect back. That's what we mean by black body. Yeah, all the light from it is due to its thermal just temperature. Yeah, it it can do both things. It can reflect and or not reflect. Sorry, it can emit and Mm -hmm. absorb so but it's going to absorb whatever light is hitting it right but then it's going to turn that into some sort of you know thermal energy or something else and Mm -hmm. then emit that back maybe as a different uh wavelength even right right yeah so rayleigh genes good at low frequencies bad at high frequencies good in infrared it explained it pretty well fit the data from experiments in in that region of uh light frequencies well and then at high frequencies, it completely missed everything experimentally. So they like to use it at low frequencies, which most things are, which is why it has any hold at all in terms of a potential theory, because most things at room temperature are low frequency light coming from them. Um, but when you get into high frequency stuff, it, it messes it up completely, not even close. But at the high energy, there was a different law. The high energy spectrum uh, was described well by something called, I'm going to say Wien, but it might be wine and it might be german so it might be like vine (laughs) w-e-i-n oh it's e-i okay yeah i thought it was i-e i think it's e-i however whatever it is okay all right yeah oh you're right it is i-e yeah so i guess german would be wien yeah or wien i don't know but whatever (laughs) i say wien but um yeah so his his law explained the spectrum well uh at high frequencies high energy light that region of something glowing but there's kind of like a goldilocks like that one's too cold that one's too hot we need something right in the middle that actually fits all the data it didn't exist and um yeah these laws existed partially classically i mean not partially completely classically like they were trying to be they're trying to derive an equation for the spectrum based on classical mechanics based on um the motions of stuff that creates these, this radiation essentially. Yeah. So that's, that's the black body physics that existed around the end of like middle of 1800s into the end of the 1800s. And then Planck started working on this stuff in late stage 1800s. Um, and then published his paper early 1900s, like 1905 or maybe it's 1901. Well, his, Do you know? his, uh, his lecture that he gave yeah. that was considered like the birth of quantum mechanics was December 14th, 1900. Okay, perfect. And yeah, so that was a delivered lecture, but then he wrote like he had writings on those lectures. Basically he published like a, I think it was like a five part series um, in like yeah early 1900s after his actual lecture. Um, but yeah, so that's the lay of the land and what Planck, tried to do and the way i understood it was well so i i think we've covered black body what it is and then why there are problems we had the low energy covered we had the high energy covered but the the middle bit the like all-encompassing theory was not covered Planck tried to tackle that 
And the way people had done it before was using uh, like billiard ball, kind of like collision type theory. Ludwig Boltzmann, is that his first name, Ludwig? Yeah, I think so. He worked out the theory for gas molecules and the entropy of gas molecules by considering collisions with like colliding billiard balls of atoms. That's kind of like the basic picture. And he worked out the entropy of a gas, um, not to do with thermal radiation at all, but just like talking about atoms moving around and jiggling and bumping into things. Um, and he worked out based on quantizing the potential like velocities they could have and saying that if you consider a certain number of molecules moving between two certain speeds in these like bins of a particular size, um, you could work out the entropy by counting like the probability of that number being in that bin of speeds for the gas molecules. So that was really kind of the, the impetus for Planck to take that idea of quantization. Um, uh, Boltzmann's definitely not like quantum mechanics at all. His is straight billiard balls colliding and working out um, statistical mechanics from that. But it's really almost the, you know, the birth of statistical mechanics. They're like uh, counting and binning and um, probabilities of large numbers of things. And that, that was a strictly mechanical process. And what Planck wanted to do was take that and say, let's work it from the electromagnetic theory side of things, like Maxwell's equations. Um, he wanted to come up with another way to talk about statistical mechanics without having to resort to Newtonian like collision type theory. That was, that was his original goal. And I, I should say this is from um, after Googling like you did, Zach, my initial question was like, okay, what did Planck actually do? I tried to go on somewhere finding an answer that was like, here's what the equation looked like. Here's what Planck did to change it. And this is how it fixed it. I thought I was going to just like find a one pager that would explain that. Um, that's definitely not how it works. <laughs> and what I found were a lot of answers pointing to one book in particular, which I found at my library by Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N. It's called Black Body Theory and the Quantum Discontinuity, 1894 to 1912. Um, so with that title, it's a pretty dead on answer to this question of like, what did Planck do? Um, and it focuses a whole lot on Planck and then talks about a couple people who came after him. But he's, he has, so if you pick up this book, it's long and it's very difficult to read. And I, I blew through every library um, allotment of time and had to return the book and then check it out again because I'd went through the renewals too much because it took so long to freaking finish this book. But <laughs> what I recommend is checking the book out, but jump straight to the afterward. So he has an afterward that I guess was an excerpt of a magazine article he wrote that's like 10 pages long, maybe 20 that explains it very succinctly and very well. I'm like, well, crap, I should have just read that because it explains it very ni nicely. <laughs> but I did get to see all the history and all his, yeah, deep, so, deep, deep research that this guy did. So I, I'm, I'm interested because one of the um, one things I found uh, when I did my Googling and, and I did, you know, I, I've only been looking into this for like 24 hours. Okay. And, you know, you said you've put some time into this, but, mm -hmm. uh, I found in 2000 in uh, Boston university, they had like a, um, Max Planck, uh, centennial celebration thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I found this, uh, preprint sort of papers on the lecture, some of the lectures that were given there. And, uh, this one guy, um, gosh, I need to pull it up. I we can put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. I think his name is Oliver or something. Um, kind of had this big long bit about uh, Kuhn's book as well as um, a few other uh, historians and physicist historians on this whole situation. And he kind of ends his um, ends his lecture by saying, "Yeah, Kuhn's book is just wrong." Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Was, Interesting. So I'm. Uh, I'm kind of curious, um, because I didn't read Kuhn's book, so but to get you know your perspective, and then maybe I'll try to throw in kind of what this guy said. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm interested. Um, yeah, Kuhn spends about 300 pages going through what Planck did, and he's he in his afterward he described the like quote unquote I don't know legend that we grew up in <laughs> undergrad hearing about. Um, is that um, 
Planck had discovered that restricting energy levels to a discontinuous spectrum was essential to the derivation of the black body radiation law he'd introduced shortly before. So he introduced a law. Um, I read a different book by somebody named um, Douglas Stone, who um, said that Planck gave a talk and presented his new black body equation following from Maxwell's equations, like kind of like an electromagnetic uh, approach to this rather than molecular and like colliding uh, molecules, stuff like that. And, uh, somebody came up to him and said, Hey, these guys are going to like, uh, not take you down, but they're like, there's problems with your, your derivations. And this is what people are, are presenting today in this next iteration of the theories on electromagnetic radiation approaches to black body stuff. And so, uh, Plank was kind of like given a, a heads up that like people are going to like try and refute your equation. And so he went home and like spent a while like working on his original equation and then try to go back and like explain it better the next time. So he came prepared and what he did for doing that. And that's, that's kind of like the, the time crunch and the, the sometimes he's described as being like desperate. Like he just had to do this change was to like throw in these like quantizations. Um, he came back to the next iteration where the people were going to refute his earlier work and say, uh, and said here, this is how it works. And I have to do this like quantization thing to make it work. And, um, Boltzmann did something very similar, which is what the first part of this, um, I'm going to call it the black book cause it's just a large black cover. Okay. Um, and it's called black body. I always just call it the black book. Um, the black book spends a lot of the first chapter or two talking about Boltzmann. Like the first early chapters are all about like Boltzmann's theory because he draws a lot of connections between, uh, Planck and Boltzmann's work and saying that, um, Planck had to go or not had to Planck went into statistical mechanics of the molecules of that little box, that cavity thing, um, to explain the spectrum of light that comes out of a black body cavity. Um, and he quantized the molecular vibrations of the molecules that make up like the wall of the box. If that makes sense. Um, and he did stuff very similar to what Boltzmann did in terms of counting and there's something that he said that Kuhn said that I, I never really got a handle on, but he said Boltzmann's bin size, like the, the, the range that molecules could have in their speeds, the size of that little range drops out of the equation. So he never really had any reason to worry about it. Like you can make it arbitrarily large or small, but uh-huh. in the Planck theory, the size of the bin mattered. And that's where his like, kind of where his like Planck's constant falls out of. Like there's, there's an extra parameter that sticks around all the way to the end. And Planck is what I really like about the book is how it explained or it demonstrated Planck being a very good scientist. Like he didn't just throw out things because he's like, well, I don't want a, a rogue constant. I'm just going to argue it away. He just kept it in everywhere, but he's like, I don't know what it means, but here it is. I don't want to get rid of it. I thought that was interesting. And it speaks to Planck, I think being a very good scientist. Yeah. Um, in this like lecture paper that I read. Um, so it's, uh, I just pulled it up. It's, uh, I guess it's Oliver, uh, Daragall. Um, we can share this, uh, as well, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, he, w- one of the things that he kind of went over in, in, when I was reading this was that is maybe it's a small difference, but Plonk, he was saying didn't really actually concern himself with, um, the molecules themselves, but like just kind of said, it's an arbitrary oscillate. Like he didn't care about the details of right. what it was, but just that it was a, an oscillator of mm-hmm. some sort. Um, and uh, uh, that was like part of why he was able to kind of, I think, do some of this, uh, like like separate himself from um, Boltzmann, who was very focused on like what the actual things were. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Planck was all about the, the electromagnetic part of the radiation not so much like the the thermal motion of the the stuff inside the resonator cavity but his so um this book and then another book that i read that the douglas stone guy both of them go on to say like plunk didn't really do anything with like he never said that there is now quantum mechanics or like things are quantized he plank had to like i keep saying plank and plunk plank had to um divide up the uh, like the bins he had to make bins of possible energies just like Boltzmann did 
the difference was his being like stuck around through the whole thing. Um, but it was Einstein, both Kuhn and this guy, Douglas Stone, both point to Einstein as being the one who recognized that like, wait a minute, it's not just like a little, little massaging of the, the equations that leads to this. It's like things are actually quantized. And he's Einstein, I think we all know in 1905 was the one who came up with like the quantum of light, which he based on readings of Planck's papers. Like he, he took it to its logical extreme, the stuff that Planck was saying. And, and that I think was the actual birth of quantum mechanics. And that's kind of the whole thesis of Kuhn's book is that it's not Planck. Planck did that in his equation, but like it really was Einstein who like pulled out of it. Like, no, things are quantized in ways that we're not recognizing here. Yeah. Uh, like one of the, um, parts here, uh, that, uh, this guy talks about in, in kind of to bolster that, that statement is, um, you know, uh, Planck pretty much says, uh, there's this small energy, he calls it epsilon and it's H times the frequency, uh, Planck's <laughs> constant times the frequency. And, um, uh, but then there's, you know, an energy for the whole system that is divvied up over N resonators. Um, I said oscillators earlier, resonator was the word, I guess is what they used. Yeah. Planck, um, Planck used to call them oscillators and then changed it to resonators later. Oh, interesting. Okay. I yeah. didn't know that part. Or maybe it's but, vice versa, but yeah, he used both. But so he said, if you take the total energy, you know, over these N oscillators and you divide it by epsilon, you think, okay, if, if there's, if each oscillator has a quantized number of, uh, energy of, of epsilon, right. Then when you take, when you divide the two, you should get a whole number because you should be getting, you know, a whole number times, uh, epsilon or H new mm -hmm. is the energy. And I guess in one of his papers, uh, Planck says, uh, uh, when the thus computed ratio, that's the energy over epsilon is not a whole number. One can take, uh, one can take for P a neighboring whole number P being the, the ratio. Right. Um, so, you know, he basically just said, like, yeah, it's, it's close enough. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But you don't always get a whole number meaning right. is it quantized? Cause if right. it's quantized, it has to be a whole number, uh -huh. you know? Um, Right. So by saying, by admitting that sometimes it might not come out to a whole number, then he's kind of like, well, it's not really quantized. It's just, it's close enough with large numbers of things. We'll get a number close enough to a whole number. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think, um, both Kuhn and Stone had the same quote and, and that's like the, the piece of evidence that they point to a lot of historians, I think point to and saying like, well, Planck didn't really recognize the quantization. Um, it came later and yeah, I, th I think it took an Einstein to claim, no, it's not just the molecular energies in being certain bins of a particular size that's quantized. It's the light itself that comes off of those molecular vibrations that lead to the, the light that we see. Um, the light itself is quantized and they, that the, the vibrations or give off energy in quantized little packets of light. And like, that's all Einstein, like a hundred percent Einstein. So yeah, I, I think the, yeah, Kuhn's main point is like, it's not Planck, it's Einstein who like actually figured out the quantum part of the quantum mechanics from Planck's theory. Um, he just really took the idea that Planck put forward and ran with it. And it's, it's interesting, like talking about originally the, the, the three laws that we had, well, the two laws, the Wien displacement, not, uh, the Wien, uh, distribution law. Not the yeah, not displacement. It's not displacement. I know I, I messed that up too. Um, for those familiar, the Wien displacement law is kind of related. It talks about the peak going as a function of the temperature. Those two things are related. The peak frequency, the brightest part of the spectrum. Um, but he has a distribution law. That's the one that we're talking about that works good at high frequencies. And then the Rayleigh genes one at low frequencies. So Planck's equation, he derived from thinking about the entropy of um, electromagnetic radiation and he had an equation. I'm going to kind of bastardize this a little bit, but it's pretty close. He had an equation that had two parameters, and uh, he figured out what the two parameters were that best fit experimental data. And one parameter was Planck's constant or related to Planck's constant, maybe like by a, a multiplication factor. And then the other constant was related to Boltzmann's constant, K, that comes up in StatMech stuff. 
So, um, yeah, he, he like fiddled the equation and fit them to data and he got out Planck and Boltzmann constant. And he's like, these are two new constants in the world. Um, one's related to the work of Boltzmann for the entropy of a, a gas of molecules. And then the other one is a new equation or a new constant that we don't have any relation to. Like, I don't know what this means. There's no physics behind it, but it's an, it's a physical constant for, and he recognized it as the action of a system, like the, um, stuff you do like Lagrangian mechanics with minimizing yeah, yeah, action. It's got units of action, joules, yeah. seconds, uh. right. Energy, time, position, momentum, that kind of stuff. So yeah, that was his Planck's constant. He named it and he said, here it is. I don't know what it means. And then, um, Einstein was the one that applied it to the photoelectric effect and said, Hey guys, check this out. It should, if lights quantized, um, have, you know, what we call now the work function where there's no light being emitted when you blast a piece of metal with light up until a particular frequency of light, then you're going to start seeing, uh, light or electrons coming off the metal and it's going to increase as you increase the frequency. And that is going to be a linear relationship with the slope equal to that constant Planck came up with guys, go check this out. And like, no one could do it because the experiments weren't good enough at the time. And then eventually they're like, Oh yeah, that's totally what happens. Yeah. This, uh, this, uh, Darigal guy, he, he kind of has this nice table that talks about um, he, 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 these three levels um, that historians kind of fall into when it comes to this whole uh, Planck quantum bit. Mm-hmm. He, he said, you know, there, there's the discontinuity group who, you know, those are the people that think, okay, uh, Planck knew exactly what he was saying and that he was, you know, saying that there is a... Uh, quantized system of energy uh, so that it's not continuous um, hence discontinuity there's an indetermination group who said he really didn't know what was happening but he didn't like he didn't believe one way or the other that everything was continuous or not continuous he's just kind of just doing what he could you know and working with what worked mm-hmm. and then there's a, a continuity group which is where he puts Kuhn hmm. who like believed that uh, Planck just thought it was continuous and that his, even though his thing fit, it wasn't going to be correct. Like I, one, I watched the PBS space time kind of on this mm-hmm. and they, they mentioned in it that, uh, I don't know where this came from, but they they said that Planck thought H would actually end up being zero right. and not matter. Um, th- you know, therefore nothing is continue or, uh, quantized. Yeah. I think, um, I think the, the, Einstein edition and the the other book by Douglas Stone, the not not the black book. Uh, Douglas Stone's book talks about Einstein being um, kind of ridiculed for his quantized light theory after he had come up with relativity, and everyone's like, "Wow, he's so brilliant!" You know, he's trying to get positions at universities, and people writing letters recommending him, and they have to like put a little caveat. They're like, even though he still thinks the light is quantized. We can't hold that against him because that's the cost of being brilliant. Like, <laughs> so they're still like writing to recommend him, uh, positions at universities and saying like, don't worry about his quantized light thing. That's, that's not true, but we just have to, you know, it comes along with Einstein being a genius that he has these outlandish ideas about light. That's funny. So people still didn't believe him. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then he, he wins. That's what he, you know, I feel like most people don't know, but that's what physicists know, but general public does not know that that's what he actually got his you know Nobel prize for. Right. Right. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not relativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The relativity it's it. I think the line is like, and other contributions to physics It's like what he was awarded the Nobel prize for. Um, oh. the, like the phrase was his discovery or for his services to the theoretical physics. Oh, his, services to theoretical physics and especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect so like yeah he got the Nobel prize naming um the photoelectric effect in his like for his services to blah 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 um but then yeah to theoretical physics just broadly <laughs> especially photoelectric effect yeah so i i was shocked i i shocked in like over the course of several months i guess reading this book to find that there isn't like a a quick fix that Planck just like threw quantum stuff at an equation. And then there it was, it was done. He, he, he's the birth of quantum mechanics, which he is, but, um, it was, um, yeah, 
Yeah, uh, kind of like so. I guess I said I was a little too harsh earlier when I said I I, I wouldn't necessarily characterize uh, this paper as saying Kuhn was wrong in what he said, but uh, it kind of just talks about like different ways to even view this whole picture. Mm-hmm. And he's he was kind of saying a lot of the people that kind of agree with the story that we heard originally, you know, that uh, Planck knew what was going on and he uh, found the you know, he understood that this was a quantized energy system, that he was doing something interesting uh, and revolutionary. Uh, that that kind of comes from, like, if you look at the broader picture of what happened with that idea, like, even though maybe he didn't specifically intend for this to be the case, you know, the fact that people interpreted his idea of this quantized energy in a bunch of different ways led to the the birth of you know, you know, it led Einstein to be able to make his prediction, right. and um, you know, uh, it, it contributed. I think this might be misquoting the people here, but this you know paper kind of talked about like people like um, uh, Schrödinger and uh, uh, Heisenberg and stuff like all also got you know ideas from reading Planck's paper, and therefore like even e- I think their argument at least in this paper isn't like, okay, so there one way to look at this historically is that even though maybe Planck didn't know exactly what was going on, that he's the one that led, led to this happening by coming up with this idea in the first place. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the black book talks about Einstein as one person who picked up on the, the like implications of Planck's work. And then another one was Ernfest is the name you, you might recognize. Oh yeah. Um, he was somebody else who worked out. He's like, okay, if Planck's true, if Planck's work is true, if we can like believe this stuff, like here's what it actually means and like tries to work out like a, maybe an origin of it and ended up similar to Einstein being like, okay, stuff's actually quantized. Like we need to pay attention to this concept. And then I believe it was Lorentz who, um, was, I think one of the more important people in terms of just making this, more widely believed because like he was a big name at the time. Einstein was not a big name at the time. So the fact that Einstein came out with something very uh, important at the time, it didn't really have the big impact that uh, Lorentz work had. So Lorentz was like believing it also with Einstein kind of around the same time. And I think they had talked to each other, but Lorentz was the one who was like, guys, this is, this is big. We need to pay attention to this. And then it kind of caught on. And that was like, yeah, like, late like like 1910 like around there approaching 1910 that stuff from Lorentz and like other people started to really catch on and then it was really like into the the teens of 1900s that quantum mechanics took off until like yeah 1920s when it was like formalized by most of the people that we know about today but it, it yeah the whole thing it it took a while for it to catch on and it took a while for um people to realize what impl- what the implications were yeah, yeah, it wasn't like he just wrote this, you know, he he gave his lecture on December 14th and then boom, everyone went, oh, quantum mechanics is a thing, you know. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it took time. Just like, I think, like all great ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was also surprised that um, Planck's original, like, mission was to work out the entropy of thermal radiation. And like, that was his goal. He wanted to figure out how to explain entropy, like the, uh, no, sorry, not just entropy, but the second law of thermo specifically. Uh, he wanted to come up with an equation that, um, showed the second law of thermodynamics using essentially Maxwell's equations. And that, that's like how it started. Um, that's like where he wanted to go. He didn't want to have the second law of thermo based. If it's truly a universal law, he wasn't happy with it just being confined to, billiard balls of molecules colliding and like counting stuff like that, that Boltzmann was doing. He's like, there should, we should be able to get to it from electromagnetic direction also. One, yeah. One of the things I read is that he was not uh, happy with like a statistical version yeah. of it that he wanted, you know, a, a, I don't know what the opposite of statistical is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, deterministic version. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So if people are interested in reading more, have a go at the black book again, black body theory and the quantum discontinuity by Kuhn. Um, but I would recommend skipping to the afterward to get an overview of everything. Um, and then I would recommend this Douglas stone, uh, book that's much easier to read. And he has like an hour long lecture talk that you can find online. We'll put in the show notes. Um, 
but his book in particular is accessible and enjoyable to read. It came out after the Einstein bio, and I think he kind of talks about that big biography. What was the guy's name? Do you know who I'm talking about that did the big Einstein biography book maybe like 10 years ago? Uh, no, I don't. More than that. There's probably lots of Einstein biographies and Steve Jobs biography, but there's one guy who's like the biography guy <laughs> who like did a ton of work. Yeah. I just Googled Steve Jobs biography. It took me to a webpage and it said authorbiography.com. So not that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's uh, Walter Isaacson is there the is. biographer who did the Steve Jobs and also the um, Einstein biography. Both are very good books. I'll, uh, I'll post this uh, uh, preprint from, you know, there's actually a few people in here and I actually want to talk about another paper in here that I read a little bit, but sure. um, Oliver Darigal is the one who wrote the, the paper that's kind of, he, he kind of explains all points of view and he lands more on between uh, Planck not knowing that he was making this big prediction and uh, uh, like, like kind of being, you know, uh, disambiguous, like, or ambiguous about it and just still believing that everything was continuous. But um, uh, he kind of explains a lot of people's different points of view on this topic. And it, it's pretty short. It's like 10 pages. Cool. Um, there was a point I wanted to bring up about people refuting Kuhn's work. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember the physicist that he, he specifically named a physicist who was like, that's not how it worked. And it, it wasn't Darigal. It was somebody that I recognized and it might've been Summerfield or somebody around. I, that. I read ones with like, yeah, about Summerfield, uh, another, and I think, and I think Aaron Fist as well, uh, Klein, um, here, let me see if I can pull what, say what, uh, let's see needle, uh, uh, yeah, most of these I don't think are physicists. Um, these are people who Ro who, Rosenfeld who refute um, Kuhn or w who like his, are his, like a not, on the they don't believe that it. story. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The ones that don't, I guess that this guy lists would be uh, Klein, Hund, Jost, Rosenfeld, and Jammer. Hmm. But I do remember reading something about Summerfield somewhere too. So one one of those people Kuhn explicitly writes about and. Um, he says like, oh, people misremember the history. And he has an example, like anecdote that's kind of funny about Bohr, where I guess um, Kuhn had interviewed Bohr, uh, like when Bohr was alive, to ask about the origins of quantum mechanics. And he interviewed him three times. And the first time he asked him a question like, what were you thinking when you wrote this? Or like, I don't know if he phrased it that way, but something along those lines. And Bohr's like, I would never write that. That's so wrong. That's such a stupid statement. And he like, as he walked away, like mumbled, like, that's a stupid question. <laughs> so uh, Kuhn went back the second time and asked him a slightly different way, the same question. And he's like, Bohr still is like, there's no way I would write that. Like, that's totally wrong. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And then the third time he like went with the paper that Bohr wrote and showed it to him. And he's like, look, you wrote this. What were you thinking? Like around that time of writing? And he's like, oh, who knows what I was thinking back then. And so like Kuhn's point is that people misremember the history after like in the origin days, you're saying a lot of stuff and some of it could be wrong. And then looking back, you forget those wrong things because they're wrong. And so they're not important to what you're discussing, but the correct parts end up being remembered much more. And so he's saying people that are refuting him are saying, well, you should probably look into like the actual texts and letters and like exchanges that people have had around this topic, which is what Kuhn does. He's like a historian, not a scientist and not, um, yeah, his, his whole thing is going to like origin sources, like letters between people and explaining things in that way. And so scientists that are saying like, that's not how it happened. He's kind of saying like, well, you should really go check the sources. Yeah. Uh, I don't have all the details, but yeah, that's, uh, this paper kind of talks about that as well and kind of has different, he, he th this guy was just trying to explain kind of all of the ideas and how to do it. Um, but yeah, he, there was one, he had one statement, uh, about, I, I, I don't have a dog in this fight personally, yeah. but, um, he had this one point that he thought was, uh, impertinent where, um, I, I, I wish I could find it, but it basically said, um, that Kuhn, in Kuhn's argument for this, kind of like you have to think of Planck as uh, consistent in one state 
and then inconsistent in another. Um, and that kind of led to a uh, contradiction. Hmm. Um, yeah, Kuhn, um, besides the Bohr story of being interviewed, he talks about um, Stern from Stern Gerlach experiments that uh-huh. are kind of the, one of the first signs of quantized spin states. Um, he interviewed Stern and asked him about like, what were like, did you know you were going to find this, you know, separation of stuff? And he's like, honestly, no, we were just like doing the experiment and wanted to see what happened. And like, that's what we saw. So (laughs) everyone points to it now as like, that's the definitive experiment that showed quantized spin states. And Stern said like, we didn't set it up to show that we just wanted to see what would happen pretty much. And (laughs) so, yeah, he's like, sometimes people look back and be like, oh, they're brilliant. I mean, obviously they're very smart in setting up this experiment and knowing where to look, but it's not always like with the intention of being this revolutionary act. Right. I, I found this story, this like, I don't know, somewhat refutation of the history that we're taught in school of like Planck just being this, I don't know, the word that gets thrown on is reluctant revolutionary, where like he like didn't want to be upsetting the world of physics, and that's pretty much not what happened. And like he didn't he didn't come in and say like, oh, everything is quantized, like the, the, the light is quantized. He didn't talk about the light being quantized. He was only just like binning molecular vibration energies in, in terms of like a accounting thing. Yeah, one of the ways that I kind of, got when i read through this is that he he did this because you know he he just we needed to try something but then wasn't certain you know kind of just what it meant and he wasn't he it wasn't yeah like i mean i think when people say he uh what what was the word that you used earlier not he was desperate right to to do make something work and i think like kind of from what i've read it seems like yeah a desperate person they don't uh try something and then go oh this is the like new theory of the entire world right if you're (laughs) desperate and you try it you go i really hope this is like accepted and it works you know and it like it kind of sounds like like that's kind of he he didn't he just said this works and tried to figure out what that meant as well right not like not the story that we're told where he was like oh this works and everything's quantized Exactly. Yeah. He's like, guys, trust me, everything's going to change from now on. It's like, that's not what he was going for. (laughs) He was really just explaining his theory of, yeah. I mean, again, I, I kind of mentioned the, him keeping the, the rogue constant around as being a sign of a good scientist. But I think the story really shows how he just believed what he was working on and just kept trusting the math to like work, whatever it worked out to be. He's like, this is what it's saying. I don't really know what it means guys, but somebody take a look, please that kind of way. And he was in a position of, of authority enough that people listened to him and he was a brilliant scientist. And, uh, so like kind of along those same lines, like a a part I want to add to this whole conversation is, uh, in the same, uh, preprint of these lectures here, um, Dieter Hoffman has a, a, a paper that he has, uh, written. It's called, uh, on the experimental context of Planck's foundation of quantum theory. Um, and basically, he just goes through, you know, like when we are told this story, we're only told about Planck and, you know, I guess we've also talked about what Boltzmann and uh, uh, what Lord Rayleigh, or is it Lord Jean? I don't know, one of them's a Lord. And, you know, all mm-hmm. these theorists, basically, and how they did this whole thing. But behind the scenes, there is like some incredible experimental physics happening. Um Yeah that we don't ever talk about. And this guy kind of highlights right. some of it. Uh, oh, that's cool. Um, Kuhn's book does not any, I think he talks a little bit down about experimentalists at the time saying that maybe one of the reasons that it didn't catch on as much was the experimentalists couldn't like do the experiments to show with that kind of precision. I could be misreading that, but that's the impression that I got. Well, I mean, I, I kind of like, I, I kind of feel like we have some evidence, at least that there's some of the opposite, right? Like, so uh, there was like one thing that I read in this um, paper that was saying uh, apparently uh, uh, Kirchhoff, so Kirchhoff was also a, a big black body radiation person. Mm-hmm. He made this suggestion about uh, how to make a black body early on. 
and like no one really listened to him, I guess, for a, a while. Like, like I think he did it in like the 1860s or 70s, and no one listened to him. And then they tried other things, and finally, when they ended up making a, uh, a black body, it was very similar to what he described <laughs> in his paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took like 30 years or something. Um, so there was that, I guess. But um, uh, these scientists uh, at uh, I, I don't know the German name. Um, it, the PTR mm-hmm. is just the polytechnic okay. something. I think it's uh, <laughs> physikalisch. Oh, okay. Technische Reichsanstalt. I don't know. I'm sorry. Okay. Please excuse my bad German. <laughs> um, PTR. Uh, you know, they're close to, uh, I guess they're like within Berlin as well. While, you know, Max Planck is working on this stuff. And, um, uh, let's see the, the guys that he talks about here are, uh, uh, Ferdinand Kurlbaum, Otto Loomer is the kind of the big guy, uh, Ernst Pringsheim. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Heinrich Rubens and Wilhelm Wien as well. Okay. Um, but, uh, so these are kind of the guys that were doing the experiments behind the scenes, um, to show some of this stuff. So like, uh, they made a, a black body, like they, you know, they were the, one of the first groups it sounded like to, to actually make something, you know, and, and basically they started with a, uh, cylinder or not cylinder, a, uh, sorry, a sphere that they like had a little hole in and they would put it in like a heat bath or something where they would coat the insides, like you're saying with like mm-hmm. soot or they would make it out of graphite. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they had to develop a new, uh, uh, photometer to actually be able to, you know, have more precision than what was out there. Um, and then they kind of, they, they decided like, okay, this idea that we have for these black bodies isn't good enough. They ended up with this uh, cylindrical tube where they put a uh, uh, a coil of platinum at the end. And then they would, you know, put like 100 amps apparently through this like coil of platinum to heat up the cavity and then look at the light coming out of it. Um, but like, I mean, if, if you just kind of think about this a little bit, like, I don't know if you've looked at a plot of... Uh, uh, Wien's or uh, Wien, whatever his his uh, approximation law. What what did we call it? It's not the displacement law. It's the distribution. distribution. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at that distribution versus uh, Planck's distribution, yeah, it's not that far off. It's not that far. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like compared to the Rayleigh genes, right, one, right, right. Like, <laughs> like it just it's so obvious that that doesn't work. Right. Yeah, but, Rayleigh genes just uh, explodes right out the gate, and goes to infinity pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but Veen, uh, uh, his law is like not terribly far off mm-hmm. and, uh, it wasn't even known that it was wrong until these guys came along and made really precise measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to, they stole this, uh, uh, photometer type device, uh, then steal it, but they, they, they used the idea that this astronomer came up with, um, it's called a bolometer, I guess is how you say it, um, from, this uh, American astrophysicist Samuel Langley, <laughs> um, and basically it was it was a Wheatstone bridge um, that had two platinum strips on it, and uh, I guess platinum is just a great material because it was used all over the place. <laughs> but uh, one of the interesting things about platinum, we still use it to this day, is its resistivity changes as a function of temperature. Okay. So they could shine when light would hit it. They, its resistance would change, and a Wheatstone bridge is really good at measuring changes of resistance. Okay. Um, so they could measure the tiny changes of resistance of this platinum wire, and uh, from that, figure out the temperature change. Huh. Oh, and so they. It, it all depends yeah. on a precise temperature measurement, obviously, because you want you want a good, like crystal clear distribution at a temperature fixed, right? Yeah. Because if, if your temperature is yeah. fluctuating all over the place and you're trying to get a precise like curve on like a spectrum distribution. Yeah. It's going to be really tough to say like definitively to definitively this part of the line is the same as that other part of the line. Right. Is, is my guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you basically want to be able to, yeah, know exactly what temperature you're, you're looking at the, the, you know, to make these small, you know, changes between, uh, you know, to find out that Wien's law is not right. 
Um, and uh, apparently this device could measure, uh, like it has a precision of 10 to the minus 5 degrees Celsius. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, apparently, like I think the thing I saw on Wikipedia is that it was able to uh, spot the thermal... Um, thermal radiation of a cow a quarter mile away <laughs> wow uh th- like that's how accurate this thing was and it, it was used originally for astronomy right uh-huh. so like to look that at stars sense. and stuff yeah. but but um so they they had this idea for this device and they're like eh, that's not good enough we need to make it better <laughs> and so they like literally started getting into like almost modern fabrication techniques um where they like sandwiched uh this piece of platinum with silver um, until it was like one piece of metal. Then they cut out a, a particular pattern to give it kind of more surface area to measure, you know, or not surface area, but length to measure the resistance change over, and I guess surface area to pick up more light and heat as well. Um, and then they would uh, dissolve off the uh, silver. And then they had this like, like micron thick piece of platinum um, that they would use that they would have to blacken and then shine light on, and it, their their version of it got to like ten to the minus seven degrees. Um, see that they could differentiate, uh, and yeah, apparently they they spent you know and this is all happening in I think this is cool too in like eighteen ninety six to like nineteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, oh, and then they they realized um. Like, okay, they want to look at, like you were saying earlier at the start of this, a lot of uh, the heat that gives given off at like normal temperatures is infrared. So they had to use like the right optics to not absorb infrared. Right, right. Um, so they like had to change out their, choose their optics and they like changed uh, lenses for mirrors. That way they're not uh, absorbing anything in the lens material. Um and just like a lot of incredible engineering and thought went into this to make these measurements. <laughs> where, where is and this? That, uh, this is in Berlin. No, no, sorry. Where, uh, where were you reading about this stuff? Which oh, this is on. So the the paper that I found the preprint. Um, the Oliver Derrick. Yeah, yeah. Guy? There's there's actually three papers in there. Oh, okay. Um, and this is just another one of them. I, Got it. it. Struck me as interesting because it, you know, I what I wanted to know when I started reading this is like how did they make black, like what, how did we measure this? Right. That was my curiosity. So yeah, I, I instantly went to this paper. Cool. Um, and uh, uh, basically, like I guess at one point, they they went to um, uh, Planck and they're like, hey, you know, this, we, we're, we have this data that's showing that this isn't right. Like it, like Wien's formula doesn't work. Um, and, uh, th- that's part of the reason too why Plunk was like he, he kind of dropped other things like okay I'm going to do this <laughs> right. and started uh, working on it but he kind of yeah, apparently he had some knowledge ahead of time ahead of everyone else because this was before they published their results I see that uh, something needed uh, fixing yeah exactly right right huh. um, I thought um, yeah so th- this is all in Berlin right and then uh, the experimentalist being in Berlin and then uh, Max Planck being in Germany is, was, he, was he at the same university? Uh, PTR? I, well, so PTR is it's I don't know exactly what it is it's its own thing facility. I don't know if it's like a government research <laughs> yeah. facility or something right. and then but Ma- Max Planck was at a university I think in Berlin oh, okay yeah so they were close I thought um, an in- interesting part of the history was how a lot of the work was being done in Germany in isolation from people in um, like the UK. So like Max Maxwell's Scottish and then uh, people like, yeah, in the UK science area journals that are written in English weren't communicating with the journals and scientists necessarily in Germany. And so they, they weren't like finding out about each other's research unless somebody uh, actually traveled there and like went to a lecture or something like that and like came back with information. It wasn't, it wasn't as widely distributed where like, yeah, they wouldn't publish the English journals in Germany and the German journals in the UK. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily know what each other are doing. Yeah. Yeah. I read somewhere that, that there was another group that was doing the same or very similar things as PTR um, was doing as well. Uh, this Lommer guy, I guess was the lead who led through all of this. Um, but, uh, and then I think it's also like, it's, you know, so I want to just highlight some of the, uh, 
you know, experimental physics that went on to make this possible. But additionally, like, I think it's a cool illustration of science in general, right? Where we have a theory, we make a prediction with that theory, and then we make a measurement and say, hey, that's the, the, the reality doesn't agree with the theory. Mm-hmm. And so we, 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 okay, all right, let's nix that. Let's try another theory. Then we do it again and we go, oh no, wait, that doesn't fit either. <laughs> so we have to nix that. And then finally, is, you know, when Max Planck figures it out, it all comes together. Right. Um, but like it's it's a good illustration of this this back and forth that we have between theory and experimental. And I think back then we didn't have necessarily this uh the same separation that we do now between experimentalists and theorists. Right, right. Yeah. I think um and another point of the greatness of scientists at the time. I don't know, maybe probably the same now, but uh, Max Planck was the the head of the journal that Einstein published his paper in 1905, talking about the photoelectric effect and the the quantization of light. And Einstein talks about Planck, but he, I guess the, the um, Douglas stone book kind of offhand makes, makes a comment that uh, Einstein was nicer to Planck than maybe he wanted to be. And that was because uh, Einstein has a, I had a friend who like kind of helped him, write his paper, meaning like proofread it and bounced ideas off him. And that friend, I guess, talked Einstein out of like being really harsh to Planck. <laughs> and so, uh, Planck got Einstein's papers, which were clearly like kind of talking about Planck's missing the point of his own work and let the papers be published anyway, like in the journal and saying like, yeah, it's fine. Like, <laughs> um, he's accepting of that, even though maybe it was a little bit not, it's not against Planck. It wasn't like saying Planck was wrong. He's just saying, missed the point buddy yeah (laughs) um yeah i don't want to go off on a a a big tangent particularly because i don't know too much but i've heard you know like now we kind of combat stuff like that by having like these blind anonymous Mm -hmm. uh reviewers of papers right um (laughs) in in journals but yes yeah yeah (laughs) but then i've heard yeah that some fields get so small Mm -hmm. you know who they are yeah, exactly. Well, the you don't have that uh, anonymity anymore. Right. Right. Um, yeah. the The book specifically says we don't. Nothing has survived of the like journals records of of the reviewing of Einstein's paper, so they don't really know what Planck thought or if he even like signed off himself. But he was he was the head of that journal, so in some respect, he was in charge of Einstein's paper coming out. Um. But yeah, I, everything I've read about Planck says the dude was super brilliant and deserves all the accolades that he gets for being a founding, like the founding origin of quantum mechanics. Like you said, if not only because people took his, his work and built upon it and took the the implications maybe a little bit more seriously, but to like a, a larger extent than Planck envisioned with the, yeah, with this publication from the beginning. Well, cool. I, cool. I had fun learning about this stuff. Um, I, I, like I said, I mean, I, I kind of got the like shock part, like pretty early on in my Google searching, but then wanting to read more, I was like, Oh, that's actually pretty interesting history that I, I wasn't aware of. Yeah. Um, along these lines, if we're, uh, interested in this still, um, I noticed in this, uh, uh, Oliver's something, I really wish I had his last name just memorized Daryl. at this point. Yeah, there we go. I have it written down. (laughs) Okay. Um, uh, He he talks about uh, these other kind of versions of this that I thought maybe would be interesting to talk about in the future. But um, uh, like this was the first one that caught my eye. Was he said, uh, consider for instance the case of J. J. Thompson, um, who you know discovered the electron. Historians should, he puts in parentheses, know that the new particle described by Thompson in 1897 had less resemblance with the modern electron than the one announced a few months earlier by Emil Wieckert. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, like I wonder how many times this we kind of have these, you know, stories that aren't, you know, like like that have kind of built up their own mythology. Yeah, mythology. Yeah, that's that, a good word for it. <laughs> uh, that's not really like kind of the exact way it goes. It, it went down, right, you know? Right. Yeah. It's similar with, um, a kind of bad version of this, but I think Feynman talks about it is the, the Millikan oil drop experiment getting the, the proper, do you know what that is? Like the charge to mass ratio of the electron 
uh, yeah, the milk and oil drop experiment. I know this one well because we do it in uh, <laughs> one of the labs that I run. Yeah. But it's um, he atomizes uh, oil into like, tiny, tiny particles. <laughs> and when you do that, just them traveling through the air, they'll pick up a charge. Um, and so you, you atomize it into two capacitor plates. Mm-hmm. And then you put an electric field in the... Um, between the, you know, you turn on the capacitor basically and uh, you t- kind of time how long uh, the velocity of the par- particle and you, you know, apply all the force equations necessary to it. And from that, you kind of find that they have, uh, you get a discrete charge. So Millikan's experiment did two things. It, it first discovered that there, that charge is in discrete chunks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he was able to measure the, the actual value of it, but there's of the charge itself or, or charge to mass, just the charge itself. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I think it's the Thompson tube that I, I don't know if that's as different than the actual discovery of the electron, but the Thompson tube, um, that's the one that you probably have seen, uh, where you have the tube and uh, or with the Helmholtz coil around mm. it. Oh, and, and you, it you can deflect, the, yeah. Yeah, uh, that one is the one where you can measure the charge to mass uh, ratio. And that came before Millikan? Uh, I don't know the order. I don't know. I, um, I knew th- I knew that they knew the charge to mass ratio, and then once somebody figured out the charge, which could have been Millikan, then you obviously from the ratio you can figure out the mass. So they like got both yeah, of them so done it, at once. It must have been. It must have been. Uh, Millikan uh, came after. I think so. Yeah, but um, the Feynman, the story of this and like the the mythology, and we hear that Millikan figured out the charge of the electron, and everyone's like, "Wow, that's crazy! Brilliant! First guy to do that." Um, but he was off, like pretty far off, if you look at like what he published um, as the charge. And um, Feynman's point is, if you look at the publications for the charge of the electron as a function of time, which it's not like the charge of the electron actually changes, but the published value. Um, like asymptotically approaches like what we know it to be now, which we say is the actual charge of the electron. It's like a it, it's like a trend like approaching what we know now. And from Millikan's data point, it goes like closer and closer and closer. And Feynman's point is that Millikan was such like a big name in science, we just trusted his value more than anyone else's. And so if somebody did an experiment to try and confirm Millikan, but got a number that's like the actual charge of the electron they wouldn't have been accepted because their number was too far off. Like they're, you're not close to what we accept now, which is Millikan's. And so like the, the act of science is like steeped in these big names coming out with these results and then believing them. But then over time, our, our understanding was like, you have to incrementally adjust, but you can't just jump straight to maybe the right answer because it, it it's in conflict with somebody, a big name, their value. Right. Yeah, Exactly. Which is not great, right. but you know it's, it's hard to fight human nature at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that I I think there's a lot of there's probably a lot of examples of that of our mythology and history of quote unquote history of our fields that end up not really being true or not the whole story. Of course, it's always more complicated no matter what. Yeah, and I mean part of it too is is it's easier pedagogically to introduce it with a simple mm-hmm. you know. Rather than go through this whole story, right. uh, you just say, yeah, this happened and then this happened. Mm-hmm. And you don't talk about everything in between. Right. And Kuhn is like a historian who covered the origins of quantum mechanics. And his role was to like interview living quantum mechanicists, <laughs> physicists who were at the beginning of quantum mechanics. And, and Planck wasn't alive when he did that project. But uh, he did go back, he said, and read the original Planck lectures and uh, when he was doing that project and he's like, Oh yeah, that's the quantum mechanics papers. And he read them and he's like, got it. Totally understand. Planck came up with quantum mechanics. Check moving on. Let's start interviewing people. Um, but then afterwards he went back and reread them and he's like, Oh, he doesn't actually say anything. That's like physics is quantized. Like it's not in the, his papers at all. And yeah, it just, it came out later. I think that was like the main takeaway from Kuhn's reading of Planck's work. And I think I bet, I bet, even the people that maybe are against Kuhn would agree on that point that Planck didn't just outright say quantum mechanics based on my papers. Obviously the term wasn't in there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that's one uh, interesting point too, that um, one of the, I think it was needle uh, in this. Um, uh, what's his last name? Um, 
Darigal. <laughs> Darigal, yeah. In Darigal's paper, he references another historian, Needle, who just outright won't talk about uh, anyone. Like, if anyone has a point on this, he won't <laughs> talk about talk to them yeah. if they are talking classical versus like quantum. Yeah. Because like when this happened, there wasn't classical right. versus quantum. Like that didn't exist. Right. Right. Well, cool. Well, my yeah original question ended up being not answerable. So I did want to see a, an equation like something like the Vine um, distribution, which was continuous and wrong that I thought was going to blow up in the ultraviolet catastrophe. Um, and then, but that's not at all what happens. And then Planck came in and said, no, make them quantized. And then it's not going to blow up. I thought that's what was going to happen, but apparently that's not at all the case. <laughs> not, not no, yeah, close. It, was, it was, Hey, we're off just a little yeah. bit in these, uh, low, uh, low, small wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I asked this question for those that don't follow us on Instagram. I asked on an Instagram story if anyone had a reference for this question like a long time ago. And then I finally did some digging myself. But follow us on Instagram at the hyperfine and sometimes ask questions there. So uh, if you have an answer, I would appreciate it. And then maybe we'll talk about it on the podcast. So check out the hyperfine on Instagram. Cool. And uh, you can also follow me. I don't post much, <laughs> but uh, I'm at uh, Fizzax. Uh, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the show's at the hyperfine, but I'm at like tortilla, Derek Padilla, like tortilla. Cool. Um, well, yeah, I'm excited to step into recording more frequently. Hopefully we get some episodes out. Um, we'll talk about some topics offline. See what we're going to yeah. talk about next. Cool. All right. Thanks Zach. Thanks Zach.